Peter 1, chapter 3, verse 8 to 22. Do no evil. Finally, all of you be like-minded and sympathetic. Love one another and be compassionate and humble. Not paying back evil for evil or insult for insult, but on the contrary, giving and blessing, since you were called for this so that you may inherit a blessing. For the one who wants to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it, because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do what is evil. Undeserving suffering. Who, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy. Ready at the time to give a defense to anyone who asks for your for you, for a reason, for a hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for the sins once for all, the righteousness, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is eight people, were saved through water, Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as a pledge of a good conscience towards God. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. What does it mean to live the good life? Or to put it in um, sort of common Christian parlance, what does it mean to live your best life now? Thinking about this, I was thinking that for the average uh, Australian, the good life is essentially synonymous with um, being free to do whatever you want. More or less every definition of the good life uh, revolves around being free to do what you want. So the good life could be about having money. You know, money sets you free to do all the things you want to do. You don't have to go back to your dreary job. You don't have to study hard to get the qualification, to get the job that you want to give you the money to set you free. You can buy, you can pay for everything that makes your life easier, whether it's a maid to clean the house or a robot vacuum. Uh, money is what people think sets you free. Or maybe it is fame. You know, fame, uh, fame gets you recognised in places. It gets you into events. It buys you an audience with powerful people whom you can then influence uh, with your thoughts. Fame gives you status and recognition, and this in turn sets you free 
to create your own reality around you. It gives you the freedom and the platform to shape your world around yourself, actually. And fame is the reason why we buy the perfume uh, Andy by Hamish, you know, from Hamish and Andy, or Dolly Parton's perfume sent from above. The reason we buy these things is not because these people are actually good at making perfume. Uh, it is because they have used their fame to shape the world around them and actually that provides them with another source of income. So it could be money, it could be fame, it could be pleasure. Uh, one of the biggest shifts that has happened in our modern society is how free we feel to pursue pleasure as a goal in and of itself. And particularly, I think, in our modern culture that involves bodily pleasure. You know, it's always been possible for humans to fulfill their, I guess, their basest desires. However, that's always been kind of shameful and secret. But now it is very common for us to, uh, to pursue casual partnerings. So much so that our language has changed that we all now know what it means to swipe right. And while there are still some age-related boundaries in this regard, we feel pretty much free to pursue pleasure in our society in any form it comes from anywhere and anyone. Because freedom is the ideal. That's what we think it means to live the good life. Freedom in the form of money or fame or freedom to pursue whatever we think will give us pleasure and make us happy. Freedom is to live the good life. But that's very different from the good life as Scripture presents it to us in our passage. Peter here describes, uh, describes the good life as, as follows. Now, he, he's writing to Christians and he says, if you want to live the good life, then this is what it should look like. And then he splits the good life into two different types of living, two different ways of behaving. In verse 8, he gives us a guide for what the good life within the church community looks like. He says, finally, all of you are to be like-minded, united in thought, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate, be humble. Now, if you can maybe, Isaac, stick on verse 8 for me, um, just ignore 9 and onwards. Verse 8 is arranged as a chiasm. Now, what that means is that the first thing that he's talking about corresponds to the last thing he's talking about. So uh, to be like-minded is to agree on the core principles of um, what it means to pursue God, his work, to preach the gospel, to do the kinds of thing a church is supposed to be doing. But in order for us to be like-minded, we actually have to be humble, you see. Humility requires us to be willing to set aside those non-essential things uh, and not to put ourselves forward in order to protect the church's unity of spirit and mind. So then to be sympathetic is the next sort of one down. It means that we are to join one another in love and to feel with our brothers and sisters. When one of us suffers, all of us suffer. When one person is rejoicing, all of us rejoice. That is what it means to be a Christian within a church family. But corresponding to, uh, to being sympathetic with each other is this, the second last one, which is to have compassion on one another. You see, we, 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 don't, um, we, we won't have sympathetic, uh, sorry, we won't be sympathetic to each other if we don't have compassion for another. Sympathy is to feel with someone, compassion is to feel 
for someone. It is to emotionally respond to another person's situation out of the love we have for that person. And then the central thought of this chiasm is that Christians within the church are to love one another. As you probably know by now, our Greek has four different words for love. And the word in scripture that we most often translate for love is agape love. Now, this is a kind of divine love. Uh, it is a deep commitment to seek the other person's good no matter what. So whether you like that person or not is actually kind of irrelevant. You love them no matter what. You do what is best for them simply because it is right, no matter how you feel about them at that time. That's, that's the kind of agape love that God has for us. You know, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son. Uh, it is while we were still sinners because God agape loved us that we have been redeemed. That's the idea of agape love. It's to act in the best interest of the other person whether you actually feel love for them or not. But curiously, the good life, according to Peter, is not actually that kind of love, not in the church. Rather, the word he uses here is phileos, which is kind of a sibling affection. It is brotherly and sisterly love. Now, the good life in the church requires us not just to love one another unconditionally, that is to do the right thing and to seek the best for the other person regardless of how you feel about them. It is actually to feel love for them, like a brother or sister does. Now, notice that there is something about a brother-sister kind of love that, is, um, that allows you to still be quite angry with the person, you know, you don't necessarily always like them, but you will stand up and be counted when that person is in trouble because you actually feel love for them even when you are, you know, sort of upset with them. We are actually commanded in this passage to feel affection for each other. We are not just a random bunch of people collected together because we worship God. No, we are actually genuinely a family that is to love one another like brothers and sisters. And that's actually kind of a high calling. It's a high calling to be a Christian, to be part of a church family. So let's pause for a moment and think. How much affection... How much brotherly and sisterly affection do I actually feel for those people around me? How do we grow in that? How do we grow in our affection for each other? Now, I think uh, science and experience has told us that it, one of the best ways to grow close to someone uh, is to do something with them to unite around a common goal or purpose and to, you know, to work together at something. But don't you see, friends, that's exactly why the church is so important. Because this is the place where we, all of us together, come to do something together, to worship God. We actually have a common goal and a common purpose, something that we are working on together, even here, even right now. It is because we come to worship God together as his people. And in some ways, 
Our worship of God is not complete unless we offer it to him as a community of his people. We have this common shared purpose, a desire to come and, and dedicate our time and worship God together. And as we do that, it should build love and affection for each one of us here. So then, how much affection do we really feel for the people around us? Is it perhaps that we don't feel that so often because my community is largely irrelevant to me? Do I come to church not so much to give my worship to God with those around me and therefore uh, I don't actually have that common purpose with those around me or do, uh, and, and instead come to get something from God or do I grow in affection for my brothers and sisters around me because we are united with this common purpose? You see, depending on your heart will depend on how you actually approach what happens on, on a worship service like this together. We are to love one another as we come to worship God. Now there's a reason for this. There's a reason we are to be united by mind and spirit and common purpose. And Jesus tells us what this reason is. He says, this is how everyone else in the world will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Someone once said that a good life or a well-lived life is the best sermon for those outside. When we love one another, we preach a gospel that is not just in words. It is shown in our action. That's the good Christian life in the church. So what is the good life in the church? Is to love those around you, to be united in common purpose, to come to worship God. But Peter goes on. He says, not only does your life in church matter, where you are to love those uh, that God has placed around you, but you are to live radically different to the world around you. Verse 10, he says, um, for, those, uh, for the one who wants to love life and see good days, so if you want to live a good life, uh, let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do what is good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. So if you want a good life, then you are to live as Jesus commanded you. Don't pay back evil for evil or insult for insult, but bless your enemy. Keep your tongue from evil. Seek peace and pursue it. Now this is quite different from what the world does. You see, the way the world acts is, if you get me, then I'm going to get you because you deserve it. And that kind of idea characterizes everything from the plot of Romeo and Juliet to gang warfare to TV series like Revenge. All of us live in a world where it's eye for an eye, you know, a hand for a hand, if you get me, I'll get you. But not so for the Christian. For we are to love not only our brothers and sisters in the church, but we are to love our enemies. We are to bless those who curse us, bless and do not curse, for our love for them is like pouring heaping coals on their heads. We turn the other cheek, we seek peace with other people. If someone has wronged us, we pursue them to restore the relationship. The world will tell you, just cut that person off. Write them off, get them out of your life. But no, 
We are to pursue peace. The world says if you find someone who disagrees with you, just deplatform them, silence them, cancel them, because obviously they are morally deficient. But no, we are to pursue peace. We are to embrace those we disagree with, to love them, because they are human beings. Even if they are our enemies, we are to love them, to bless them, and not to curse them. That was what it means to live the good life as a Christian. To love those in the church, to love those outside the church. And when we do that consistently, friends, that kind of life becomes a sermon so loud that those around us cannot help but hear it. It becomes a message so well proclaimed that says, look here, you cannot ignore this. And because it is so loud, the world will respond if you live like that consistently. The world will respond. Now, how does the world respond is the question. What does the Bible say here the world will do when you live a sermon like this? How will the world respond? Well, the world will respond in one of two ways. It will either be perplexed or it will persecute you. It will either be perplexed or it will persecute you. So to be perplexed, now that means to be confused, to be disorientated, to be discombobulated. Uh, you know, the world will see a Christian life in action, lived as it is supposed to be lived, um, and it will, confusion will be the response. That is one of the responses we have. And that has been a consistent response throughout all the ages couple of examples. In the second century, there was a writer called Lucian of Samosata. Now, he, he wrote a book um, uh, in which he criticized and mocked Christians. He rejected Christians and he said that Christians were naive, they were gullible. Why? Because of our insistence that there is an eternal God. Uh, and now, the reason he was confused is because he says in this book that Christians give up all the things they can have in this life. They give up power, they give up money to, uh, to uh, you know, devote their lives to God. And that's ridiculous. He could not understand it. But that sounds familiar to our time, doesn't it? People don't understand why we do that, even today. Well, what about a couple of hundred years later? Julian the Apostate. Isn't that a great name? Julian the Apostate. Uh, in, in 363 AD, he wrote a text called Against the Galileans. So he's writing against Christians. And he criticized Christians because they spend too much time and too much money looking after the poor, after the sick, after the needy. He said, this, this flies in the face of the Roman value of being strong, being independent, being able to look after yourself. Now that sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? Doesn't that the other world sees us even today that, uh, that it's kind of odd to give up your time for people you don't even know? Or what about more recently, Nietzsche, 1500, oh, 1,500 years later? He was confused that Christians had what he called a slave morality. That is, that we live self-sacrificial lives that is so at odds with what he thought was correct that humans ought to use their strength and their power to pursue their desires. 
Now that sounds pretty familiar too, actually, when you think about it. Is that not what our world tells us? You look after number one, you do what you can to get what you want. That's what Nietzsche thought. Or what about Michel Foucault, the uh, French philosopher, who argued that our sexual ethic was just a way to control people and to undermine their freedom. That sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Is that not how the world sees our view of man and woman only in marriage? As oppressive? Or what about the close friend of our family who was shocked to hear how much it costs to send a child to a Christian school, but that we were happy to make that sacrifice because of our beliefs. He cannot understand it. What about old mate John at the pub who doesn't understand why you don't drink yourself into a stupor every weekend as he does? Because that's fun, isn't it? What about Rajesh at work, you know, who cannot understand why you would get up early on a Sunday morning to come and listen to boring old me? What do all these people have in common? From philosophers to family members, from friends to the highly educated to the highly inebriated, what they all have in common is that they are confused. They are perplexed. Why would we be willing to give up our power, our fame, our money, our pursuit of pleasure to live the life that Jesus taught us? Why would we do that? They cannot understand it. Peter recognises this. Uh, he says, when you come across a confused person, what are you to do? You are to, verse 15b, be ready at any time to give a defense you have for the reason that, is, or that you have the hope in you. In other words, if they are confused, explain it. Tell them why you have this hope, why you are willing to sacrifice your life, why you have this, uh, this hope that cannot be quenched, this hope that cannot perish, this true and sure hope that no matter what happens, you know that Jesus will come back and in the end everything will be all right. If they don't understand, you must explain it to, uh, to them. Now, look at the words that Peter uses here. He says, be ready at any time to give a defense to anyone. Some translations have the word reason. Always be ready to have a reason for the hope that is in you. But the CSB is better here. He's actually translating the Greek word um, apologia, which is where we get apologetics from. It's, it's a defense of your faith. Why do you believe? You should be able to have a rational reason for why you believe what you believe. Now, we don't always have a good idea why we can do, like how to do that. Uh, sometimes that's tricky. So I have actually quite a number of different books here that I'm going to leave here for you to pick up and take. Um, if you want to know how to share the gospel with someone, here, 10 ways, bam, there's the book. If you have someone who wants to find out more, you can read the Bible with them. If you, wanna, uh, if you have someone who wants to find out more, there's a great little book here, Beginning the Journey. This is basically um, about... It's all the important parts of Scripture put together. You can have that. Or if you want to find out more about how people come to know God and to grow in faith, I've got three of these. It's kind of more like a Bible study that you can do on your own. And leave them on the table there. These are all ways for us to grow in being able to give a defense for the hope we have within us. You see, we actually have a responsibility to upskill ourselves in order to have this discussion. This is not an optional extra. This is something that Peter uh, tells us, that God tells us to do. Be ready. Now, how do you be ready? Well, you prepare yourself. 
And these are ways in which you can do that. So if you want to be diligent and learn, please take these with you. We've got this trivia night coming up and someone might ask you, why are you so different? Well, you have the opportunity to be prepared. So that when they are perplexed, you actually have a response to give. That's a very good thing. So perplexity is the first response that the world has. And then the second response is also very common, and that is persecution. They want to destroy that which cannot be understood. So we've seen that Scripture calls us to live as radically different people, living this good life that God has put before us, a life that is so marked by our love for each other and for the world around us that the world uh, sees this sermon so loud that they cannot help but respond. And they will respond, and maybe they respond with being confused and perplexed, but often they will respond by persecution. This is what Peter says. He says, after, uh, you know, after he says to be ready to give a reason, an answer for the, the hope we have, he says this. Um, who, uh, so from verse 13, who then will harm you if you are devoted to doing what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ as holy. Ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. Um, yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Now, when you live as Jesus calls you to live, you will confuse people and you should be ready to answer. But the world might also hate you. It may be so challenged by the sermon you preach with your life, by the message you bring, that it will persecute you and seek to destroy you. That is true. And Peter recognized this and he says, if the world is to persecute you, if the world is going to hunt you down, it is better to suffer for doing what is right than for doing what is wrong. But then he says, if you are to suffer for living the way Jesus calls you to live, this is to be your response. Do not be fear, uh, fearful, do not fear or be intimidated. Now there's a lot to unpack in this little verse. The first thing we know we need to understand here uh, is that there actually is an objective good. So if you are to suffer for doing what is good, what he's saying there is there actually is good and there is evil that is objectively good and evil in the world. But who gets to define what is good and bad is not the world, but God. God is the one who, who authors what is right and what is wrong. God is the one who laid down the foundation of the world and in so doing set forth the law on which we are to build our lives. It is God who de, uh, defines what is right and wrong, not our world's view around us, not the society we live in. You see, God's truth, God's word in every culture at every time will celebrate some aspects of the society in which you live and it will criticise other bits of that same society. In our current culture, we are more and more um, faced with the demands to celebrate LGBTQI sexuality. But that is something that the biblical Christian cannot do. At the same time, 
We should actually be on the forefront of protecting LGBTQI citizens from physical abuse. Why? Because they are people who have uh, God's image. They are image bearers of God. They have value because they are human. Each of us bears God's image. Each of us has human dignity. And so there are some parts of our society that the Bible will criticize and some that it will celebrate. However, more and more, because we cannot agree with the sexual ethic, more and more our world will try and cancel us, deplatform us, hurl insults at us, threaten us with physical violence, actually commit physical violence because we will not celebrate a non-biblical view of sexuality. The same is true of issues like abortion and euthanasia. Scripture stands strongly against what is actually an issue of murder, even though the world calls it good. The world has declared that abortion, euthanasia is good and right. It is the right of people. And therefore, since Christians are to stand up for people's rights, we should support that. But no. What is evil is evil, because God has declared it so. And so we will be called evil... We will, be, um, we will be threatened with violence. We will be, in short, persecuted for not celebrating uh, popular end-of-life care, as it is called. Because we don't have allowable views in this world anymore. And because we don't have allowable views, we won't get a public say in a public debate and we can't be allowed to disagree for fear of losing our jobs or the, our ability to provide for our families or even indeed our physical safety. And that's the world we live in. Persecution is likely. But as the Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas said, you can be in the middle of a hurricane or you can be on a calm day. North is still north. You can be a in a thunderstorm and north is still north. People can yell at you, but north is still north. It does not change fundamental things. And in this business, right is still right, even if you stand by yourself. And so in the face of this kind of world, Peter says, do not fear. Do not be intimidated. If you are to suffer for doing what is good, you are blessed. He will then go on in chapter 4, to tell us how suffering is actually good for us, how it brings, uh, you know, how it shapes us, how it brings glory, glory to God. In it, we magnify God's name. And so when we suffer as a believer, even unto death, we actually preach a sermon so loud that the world cannot help but notice. It's like the true story of Telemachus, who was a Christian monk who lived in around 400 AD. Now, he ended up visiting Rome. He went to the Colosseum and he saw the gladiators fight and kill one another. And he was so distressed at the senseless death and violence of this spectacle that he rushed into the Colosseum, calling for an immediate end to the, to the fights. Now, the crowd of the Colosseum turned hostile. The story goes that either the crowd stoned him and he died, or perhaps the gladiators turned on him and killed him. But nevertheless... The emperor at the time, a man named Honorius, uh, he was so deeply moved by this monk's death and his sacrifice 
by the fact that this man was willing to die actually for what was right, that on, from that day forward he decreed that all gladiator fights would end and they did forevermore. This man's life preached a sermon so loud that the world could not help but notice and it changed things for the better. But even more than Telemachus, Telemachus, um, when we should suffer for doing right, we're actually following in the footsteps of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he too was persecuted for preaching a worldview that was an ethic that threatened what was considered to be good and right. He proclaimed a kingdom that was not of this world. He demanded an obedience to God, not the religious rulers, not the emperor. And in the end, Jesus, the Son of God himself, was killed for being perfectly righteous. His good was called evil. And because he was killed in his righteousness, we are blessed when we are persecuted for doing what is right and good. And so, little flock, when we follow, when we live our best life now as defined by God, when we pursue the good Christian life marked by unity and brotherly and sisterly love, love for our enemies, a strong commitment to that which is good as God has declared it, when we do this, the world might be perplexed, so be ready for an answer. Or they might be persecuting you, so be ready to suffer. But when you do suffer... Remember that you are following in the footsteps of your Lord who suffered for you. And that north is still north, that right is still right, even in the middle of a hurricane. For when we suffer for doing what is right, we are following in the footsteps of our Saviour and we are being made like him. And that brings glory to God and shapes you in a way that nothing else ever will. And that is a reason to have So let's pray. Lord, as we consider our lives and our uh, need to love one another, love the world in a way that is radically different uh, from, from what the world offers us, we are so thankful that you've made the way possible through your Holy Spirit working in us, that we can be united around the core things of the gospel, and that even when we disagree on things, we can love one another as brothers and sisters do. Lord, also you've made the way clear for us to love uh, our enemies, to pursue their good even when, um, even when it is detrimental to our own safety and health as well. But that we can do this knowing that we are following in your footsteps. And as we love like you have loved us, we pray that, uh, that you will indeed make the world perplexed, that they will know that we are your disciples by the way we love one another, and that they will seek answers for the hope that we have. Make us ready, O oh Lord, to be able to give an answer, a defence for, um, for what we believe. But if the world should seek to destroy us, in whatever shape or form or severity that looks like today, we pray that you will give us fortitude, knowing that we are following in your footsteps and that when we suffer, you are glorified. And that's what our lives are for. And so we, we pray that you will give us the strength to, to do that through your Holy Spirit. So we commit all this to you, Lord, not because we deserve it, but because we are your children whom you have called out of darkness and into your glorious light. 
What a gift it is to be your children. Help us to keep our eyes on you. We pray in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.